You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you are returned from the UK. As of last night, about 9.30 p.m. last night, I got in after uh, roughly like 14, 15 hours of flights. It's good of you to be here today. It is good of me to be here. But we felt like it was necessary. The last time we recorded an actual co-main event podcast was October 14th. We sit here today, October 28th, I believe. October 28th. So it's been a while. We have missed a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of stuff seemed to happen while I was away, which is really discombobulating when you're over there in a completely different time zone. Now I understand how MMA fans over on that side of the world have to deal with this shit, man. Because it's like, I go to bed one night, everything's fine. Yeah. Totally fine. I have a few pints down at the local pub, come back, fall asleep, it's all good. Wake up with weird jet lag stuff at like 4 o'clock in the morning, and Nate Diaz talking about, I don't think I'm going to make it, you guys. Yeah. And you're going, what? How did this happen? How the hell did this happen? That's a great question, and I think that that is one of the things we will discuss today on this episode of the podcast. But because we missed so much stuff, because it's been so long between uh, co-main event podcasts, what we're going to do this week is uh, we're going to sort of dispose of our normal three-round format. We're just going to try to work through as many topics as we can of stuff that transpired while you were on vacation. Uh, we've got some listener mail questions that we're going to try to work in during this next hour here and there. Uh, but we're going to try to hit all the high spots of stuff um, that happened while you were away that we missed in between co-main event podcast episodes. First of all, we'll start out with one quick announcement that uh, Children of Men... My selection for the co-main event podcast Patreon Movie Club prevailed in a fairly close vote over your choice, The Proposition, last week. Ordinarily, we would record that this Wednesday and put that episode of The Movie Club out. We're going to push that to next week because, frankly, it's BMF title fight week. I still have like three feature stories I have to write. I assume you got a bunch of shit you got to write. So we are going to do Children of Men a week from Wednesday and then hopefully we'll be back on our regular schedule. Hopefully. And it will be listener's choice after that. It will be listener's choice So everybody that. get your recommendations out. Get ready to voice your movie tastes upon us. But everything else this week will be normal. We'll have Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon live chat on Wednesday. We'll have the Athletic live chat on Thursday. We'll have a Power Hour on Friday. And then, of course, UFC 244 goes down on Saturday. Ordinarily, we would do a fight party for UFC 244 uh, live from the Ice Planet Hoff, a.k.a. Ben Folks' basement. This week, though, you and I got a special assignment. We did. This just happened uh, uh, moments ago on the athletic Slack channel that we use to uh, communicate with all of our coworkers all across the globe over there at the Athletic. Tell the kids where you and I are going to be for UFC 244 on Saturday night. Well, you know one of the things I really like about working at the Athletic? It's the kind of place... Where people let their imaginations roam free. 
We start off just cracking wise and making jokes, and next thing you know, we got ourselves a story idea on An our assignment. hands. You and I are on assignment. It started, I believe, with Josh Gross mentioning that he had gotten an email forward that they're rolling out a new wing sauce in honor of the BMF title down there at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah, we got the uh, the BMF wing sauce coming to us from Buffalo Wild Wings. You and I heard that, and we thought, man, we got to try this hey, special wing sauce. Buffalo Wild Wings, don't we? Right out there on Reserve so Street. I'm just going to read the... Uh, the description of the BMF wing sauce yes. that was emailed. Josh Gross gets press releases from Buffalo Wild Wings. I, I feel like I get press releases from every entity on the planet. How did I not get this one? Here's what it says. The UFC-inspired sauce combines the flavors of sweet mango, spicy habanero, and the unrelenting heat of ghost peppers, okay. which are then topped with the sweet and smoky chili pepper flavor of desert heat seasoning, creating a diabolical mashup worthy of the BMF moniker. Diabolical? I love the way we'll just... I don't think we do it with any other foods. Where wings and wing sauce stuff, it's like they're threatening you with it. <laughs> no other food do people really try to use as a weapon the way they do with wings. Long story short, Saturday night, Lord Willing and the Missoula Buffalo Wild Wings taking part. You and I will be at, at B-dubs to watch UFC 244. And frankly, we're going to eat the BMF wings so other people don't have to. We're going to eat the shit out of these wings. Maybe have a couple few soda pops, and then we're going to write about the experience. Look forward to a missive Sunday morning at The Athletic about what it's like to go to Buffalo Wild Wings for UFC 244 and eat those BMF hot wings. But looking forward to it. I've never eaten a UFC-themed food, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, me either. So this is going to be a, a good experience. Well, I wouldn't go that far. All right, let's get into this here. As of this recording... Ben, Nate Diaz is back in at UFC 244 following a surprise withdrawal last week, Thursday afternoon. I mean, an informal withdrawal. But well, yes. Yeah, let's say it's informal. Nathan Donald Diaz took it to notes. <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. To self-report that he had experienced what later came to be termed an atypical drug test administered by USADA, an out-of-camp competition drug test. Uh, at the time, Nate Diaz didn't even really know what he had tested positive for, which I think becomes self-explanatory as we move forward because the thing that he did test positive for uh, doesn't have much of a, a – let's just say it doesn't have a catchy name. Uh, but he's, he, he called false. He called bullshit on this positive test. Uh, it led to 30 hours of – nail-biting silence, I would say, from the UFC, from everyone involved in UFC 244. We had no idea what was going on with, I, the, with the scheduled main event between Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal. Eventually, late Friday night, yeah, the UFC sends out a statement that con confirms that Nate Diaz did test positive for LGD 4033, a.k.a., I believe, uh, Ligandrol is one of the, the names for it. Sure. Ligandrol. Whatever. Uh, it's a SARM, which is like a, a steroid-ish yeah. property. Well, it's like the same shit uh, like Osterine. Yeah. That shit that Josh Barnett and a bunch of other people tested positive for, claiming that it was in a contaminated supplement. And it is found to be in a lot of supplements without being on the label. 
So uh, late that night, you had UFC chief business officer Hunter Campbell and Jeff Nowitzki, the guy who is the essentially the UFC's drug testing czar. I believe he's technically the the vice president in charge of athlete health and performance or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Those guys uh, d- conducted interviews with a bunch of MMA media. I was one of them. Uh, and so th- there's a lot of ins and outs here. And we wanted to bring this up right at the beginning of the show, not only because it's the biggest news of the last week, but because there's a lot of shit to kind of talk about here. My favorite part in Nate Diaz's social media campaign to demand that his name be cleared, yeah. otherwise he wasn't fighting, is how he included on Twitter when he was adding people, you know, hitting like at UFC, at Dano Adel. He included... UFC on Fox. Yeah. Which, I don't know if that really, that account is monitored too closely these days. But that's my favorite part. Just showing Nate Diaz from a different era out here. And he's, he has his idea of who he thinks the heavy hitters in this sport are. And he's going to demand that all of them act now to clear his name. Okay. And they do. Yes. They jump on it immediately. So Friday night, we get this uh, official statement, written statement from the UFC uh, that includes, seems to take pains, frankly, to include phrases uh, that clear Nate Diaz of any wrongdoing in this in this instance. Uh, it says, I'm trying to find the exact quotes here uh, that, uh, that it uses in the actual statements. But anyway, here's from uh, Jeff Nowitzki himself. He says, it's a clear... Case, uh, it's as clear a case of unintentional ingestion as we've seen, where the athlete did absolutely nothing wrong, felt they were using a safe product. The product itself on the label said lab tested organic. It, was, it wasn't one of these supplements so when you look at it and on its face, it's called Rhino Testosterone 5000. This was about as benign a supplement as you can get. So at least according to the UFC, the substance that causes Nate Diaz's atypical drug test was a quote, vegan, plant-based, organic daily multivitamin, uh, which is a little bit of a redundant turn of phrase there. <laughs> But we're going with it. We're going with it. So I guess there's a lot of places that we could start discussing this topic. But if you are willing to take the UFC explanation of this at face value, it does seem like Nate Diaz was another one of these fighters hemmed up by a contamination issue involving a supplement that he was taking that caused him to run afoul of essentially the United States Anti-Doping Agency and World Anti-Doping Agency uh, prohibited substance list. Right. But I think the real story here is in the response yeah. and everything the way this was handled. First of all, his initial claim is that basically somebody told him, hey, you had this finding and we wanted to let you know about it. We don't think you did anything wrong. You don't even need to publicly address it. Like, don't even say anything. Yeah. Just, this is his version, at least. Go out, just go out there, do the fight. Everything will be fine. We'll take care of it. Everything is going to be fine. And he was like, no, I'm not going to play it that way. I'm going to tell everybody, and I'm going to demand that you fix it. Just so, what, maybe you can't hold it over my head later if I'm not doing exactly what you want me to do. And really gets exactly what he wants there. He tells them all he wants them to jump. They say how high. Yeah. They got Jeff Nowitzki out there. They never, or at least rarely, are this adamant and this clear and this quick yeah. about telling everybody this is absolutely not a case of cheating. Yeah. Uh, you compare this, especially compare it with the Josh Barnett thing, which 
I know he's not the perfect guy to hold up here because of his history with failing drug tests, but in this instance where he also had a supplement that was contaminated with a SARM, a different SARM, but still, same class of stuff. He also had all this documentation and proof of what he was taking and why he had no reason to think that this would be in there. And then he gets popped for it anyway. And he has to spend thousands of dollars and go to arbitration, stretching out well over a year, yeah. as I recall, yeah. in order to finally get the arbitrator. USADA wasn't willing to say, like, hey, we don't think you cheated. USADA wanted to still hit him with some kind of a penalty. He had to get the arbitrator to say, this guy took reasonable steps, did not mean to do this, and it's not his fault, and basically let him off with a public reprimand and no punishment. But it cost him a lot of time and money to get there. Nate Diaz, on the other hand, has this big fight coming up. You know the UFC has an interest in seeing that fight go forward. Because as we talked about in the special little segment we put out last week, there's not a whole lot you can do with this event if you lose Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal from this at such a late date. Yeah. Now they have a financial interest in it, and suddenly it's, don't worry about it, we're going to take care of it, it's no big deal. Gets resolved with a quickness. Gets Jeff Nowitzki out there explicitly saying this guy did nothing wrong. And if you're telling me that this is the UFC and USADA learning from past mistakes, fine. Yeah. But then it also makes me wonder about some of these other dudes who got kind of unfairly tarred. If you're, if you're saying we changed the policy, for one thing, maybe let us know a little more clearly when you changed the policy and exactly what the new policy is and why you felt like you needed to change the policy. But then also, if you're saying you changed the policy, it means you realize that the previous policy was wrong. And if you've punished people under a policy that you now feel is wrong, it seems like the least you owe them is clear in their name as vociferously and clearly as you went out there to do it for Nate Diaz. Yeah, we've seen a lot of fighters, especially recently, run afoul of these SARMs that we are led to believe pretty commonly show up in supplements. And you mentioned Josh Barnett. Uh, Tom Lawler is another one who basically ended his MMA career or UFC career, frankly. Neil Magny. Uh, Neil right? Magny just got the same kind of thing. Neil Magny, actually, the first UFC fighter to be treated uh, under the new... Uh, revision of the drug testing policy, which includes these minimum thresholds that we'll, I think we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Nico Montano, same deal. Uh, a bunch of Walt Harris, same deal. And now Nate Diaz add to that list. Uh, and it, you know, I've, I'm, I'm starting to think that the more that I learn about it, and I just did that big story about the world anti-doping efforts and the UFC's drug testing policy over at the athletic a couple months ago, the more that I find out about anti-doping efforts, the more I come to think of it a little bit like weight cutting. Like we all think, hey, here's a cut and dried issue that should be easy for the MMA world to you know, make sense of and clean up. Reach a consensus on. But really it's, it's very complicated and there's a lot of ins and outs about it. And the UFC drug testing policy clearly is kind of like a work in progress. I think some of the things that they are doing are good. I think that, that you know... In, from the individuals involved, I think that there's a good faith effort to try to make the UFC drug testing policy as workable as it can be for everybody involved. And yet at the same time, anytime you have a drug testing policy that is essentially run in-house, the UFC has yeah. a partnership with USADA, but I mean, 
the UFC runs its own drug testing program internally. It really doesn't have a choice of whether to do that or not. But anytime you have a situation like that, clearly there's always going to be an element of corporate liability to it. There's always going to be an element of where maybe there's a lack of transparency because you're running the whole thing internally. And there's always going to be an element where, frankly, guys like Nate Diaz, who have a big fight coming up this weekend, are going to be treated a little bit differently. See, and that was always the old criticism of the way the UFC interacted with athletic commissions and in doing its own drug testing was that if you got popped before a big fight, the reaction was different than if you got popped after a big fight. Yeah. You got popped after, is your problem. You deal with it. You got popped before, then the UFC would either, you know, maybe help you out there if it could, uh, like the Vitor Belfort stuff, where it kept that whole situation really quiet before he went out there to fight John Jones, even though, as it mistakenly emailed test results to a bunch of people, uh, made clear that they had reason to know that there was something weird going on there. Or if you get yourself ruled out before a fight, they go scorched earth on you. Whereas if you get popped after everybody's made their money, well, okay, you, you can go off and deal with that on your own. And you're right that it is more complicated than I think a lot of us realize at first. And also just more complicated in trying to decide what do we want our anti-doping program to do. Right. And this has been, I think, one of the unintended consequences of the USADA era in the UFC. Is everybody kind of trying to figure out how do we spot a cheater from somebody who just fell prey to a Wild West industry when it comes to supplements. Yeah. Where they can just throw in whatever the hell they want to and don't matter, don't have to care what it does to anybody else. And also, what do we really want USADA to be going after? We seem like we would prefer it if you were figuring out a way to focus on the JPD and guys. Right. People out here just playing doping. Your TJ Dillashaw is out here doing EPO and shit like that. And instead, what we've gotten a whole lot more of is... This weird thing that a lot of people have never heard of, and then the guy says it was in my protein powder. Yeah, and you know that that in and of itself is an issue that is tough for a lot of people to swallow. But like you said, the supplement industry is largely unregulated. I don't really think it's beyond the pale of possibility that some of the stuff that is on the prohibited list of the World Anti-Doping Agency really is getting dumped into some of these supplements. Uh, with without really any oversight at all, and this one, I mean, again, like the Nate Diaz taking a fucking vegan multivitamin. Yeah, like I, I mean, I like how Jeff Nowitzki feels like he's taking a little bit of a shot at Frisky's Explode, yeah. uh, Sir Nigel's favorite uh, pet-based supplement. But you know, you do see some of that stuff where you're like, oh yeah, uh, Silverback Triple X Eight Thousand. You probably should have known that maybe you were getting into some troubling territory. But if that shit's in organic, vegan, plant-based multivitamins, Chad, yeah. that say they're lab-tested and all that stuff, well, then what the hell can you do? And a lot, I think a lot of the stuff that happened with this Nate Diaz case that looked untoward to begin with, kind of in retrospect, once you take a bird's-eye view of it, turns out that most of it occurred within the normal framework of the UFC drug testing policy. Like... The, the way that the UFC drug testing policy works now is that they won't announce a positive drug test until right. it is fully adjudicated. So the fact that somebody called Nate Diaz and told him that he didn't have to go public with that uh, revelation, you know, you can see how Nate Diaz might think that that was 
untoward or not in his best interest. You can see how the way that it initially came to light as part of his statement via notes. Fuck you, clear me. Seemed, you know, unseemly. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it with under the umbrella of the UFC drug testing policy, I feel like it's reasonable to assume that what probably happened is that someone from USADA called him and was like, hey, man, we had this atypical drug test result. You don't have to release it until after we like adjudicate the whole thing. You're still going to fight on Saturday, et cetera, et cetera. And like really the only out of the ordinary thing that occurred is that Nate Diaz took it to notes. But then that does make you wonder, what if they find somebody who is J.P. Dean? Right. If, hey, you had this atypical finding for EPO. Yeah. And we still need to adjudicate it, but you have a fight in four days. Yeah, I think that's where the threshold is supposed to come in, right? It's like some of these substances are covered under these minimum thresholds. Some aren't. Like if you have a TJ Dillashaw drug test result where you come in uh, with EPO, in a perfect world, that, that guy gets pulled out of the fight. Now, does that happen in practice? We don't know, really, at this point. But Nate Diaz tested positive for what is called a low double-digit picogram amount of this LGD-4033. Which is the fucking picograms again. Which is one of the substances that has these minimum thresholds. So because Nate Diaz is under that minimum threshold, it is considered an atypical drug test, not a positive drug test. And then that's the situation where they go in and test all the dude's supplements. And in this case, allegedly they were able to find the source of that LGD-4033 and put Nate Diaz, never take him out of the fight, really, but put him back in the fight according to how this played out in public. Well, and the way it played out, this was written up in the damn New York Times. Yep. The New York Times has decided that Nate Diaz is newsworthy. Well, and he's scheduled for a fight in Madison Square Garden, so that might impact that helps. Their, their view on it a little bit. But here's here's my question to you. Did Nate Diaz just draw up a blueprint for everybody? Did Nate, or did Nate Diaz set a precedent when it comes to how USADA deals with some of this stuff? Because he, I, I mean, I think Nate Diaz honestly deserves a ton of credit for how he did this. Because he could have taken, and a lot of people would have taken the path of least resistance here. And been like, okay, you say I don't have to say anything about it. You say it's all going to be fine. I'll just, I'll shut up and I'll take your word for it. And I'll focus on getting ready for the fight. Yeah. And instead he said, no, clear me now. Get it out there. I wanted to hear you say it in front of God and everybody that Nate Diaz is not a cheater. And then I will show up and I will do your fight for you. And they did it. Yeah. In some ways, I think yes. And in some ways, I think no. I mean, obviously, Nate Diaz is going to be able to get away with some stuff that other people maybe aren't going to be able to get away with. Like Because like we said, he's a high profile, at this point, needle-moving athlete for the UFC who had a big fight coming up on Saturday that everyone involved had a financial incentive to make sure that it happens as yeah. scheduled. So Nate Diaz has a little bit more stroke, as the boys in the back would say in the professional wrestling industry, than maybe Neil Magny would uh, when he tests positive. But at the same time, I feel like him announcing it publicly from a public relations standpoint is a super good move for Nate Diaz because we already have a lot of goodwill toward Nate Diaz. We already don't think that he is a guy who would be out here taking steroids because he and his brother Nick are kind of like 
long recognized as pro pot anti steroid yeah. uh, superheroes or whatever they anti bullshit superheroes. Like we said last week, if we felt like we were sure that anybody wasn't on steroids, we felt sure that Nate Diaz wasn't. Yeah, so coming out and publicly saying, "Hey, I tested positive, but I call false on that," and I think were his exact words, is a good public relations move to make it look like you are not on steroids, like that, like you said on the special retort that we recorded. Uh, on Friday, that's something that you would do if you were innocent. Right. Is come out and say, here, I tested positive for this shit, but I didn't do it, and I'm not fighting until I get my name cleared. Right. If you knew you were doping, and they came to you with that, and they said, hey, just lay low, it'll be cool, you'd go, okay, I guess that's the best I can hope for at this point. Yeah. So a bunch of stuff happened. We already knew that the UFC was going to institute these thresholds that had already talked about that publicly. It had gone to the California State Athletic Commission with, with Neil Magny and talked about the threshold issue. We knew that the UFC was about to announce this revision of the drug testing policy in like two or three weeks that I think at this point is going to include those thresholds and maybe be, uh, have explicit information about what those minimum thresholds are. Uh but like, you know, if you're not, if you don't have your ear very close to the ground in this sport, you probably didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, if you come into this without that knowledge, maybe it looks like they changed the rules for Nate Diaz. Again, since one of the issues here is sort of a lack of transparency, we don't know for sure. Like Nate Diaz could have a thousand milligrams of hardcore steroids in his body. We don't know for sure. But if you want, if you're going to take uh, the UFC drug testing program at its word, and he tests positive for this very small trace amount of uh, LGD forty thirty three, he was under the threshold. They tested the supplements. They found the the source of it. Like, despite the fact that this turned into a huge public scandal, almost or like thirty hours of of uh, panic, panic, yeah. You could say that like this is how the UFC drug testing policy is supposed to work yeah. in a way. Man, a thousand milligrams of hardcore steroids. That'd be a lot, yeah. I think. Especially if they're hardcore steroids. Well, it doesn't on seem how like, hard they, hardcore they doesn't are. seem like you'd need a thousand milligrams. You never know. If how big do you want to get? Pretty big. Yeah, I know you do. So let's talk <laughs> turkey here. Okay. All right. So as far as we know, everything is all good leading up to the UFC 244 BMF title fight which clears the way for us to have a, a short conversation at this point about how we think this fight is going to go. Nate Diaz against Jorge Masvidal obviously matched up not only because it seems like they sort of respect each other a little bit. Nate Diaz called out Jorge Masvidal after his most recent win, and as he did so, basically said, we're the two realest motherfuckers in the game or whatever. We're two gangsters, but I'm West Coast and you're East Coast. Let's brawl it out. Let's have this big fight. We put it together. Everyone loves it. We expect Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal to get together and throw them bumps. Bungalows, actually, probably like 800 jabs is probably what this fight is <laughs> yes. going to be. How do you think this fight is going to go? I get, I got to give the slight edge to Hori Masvidal here. Just because I think, you know, I've been proven wrong about Nate Diaz in the past, though. Because I there are times where I think maybe we make the mistake of thinking that Nate Diaz and Nick Diaz are exactly the same. And the flaw with Nick Diaz was always that he could do... Several things really, really well. But he had this tough guy mentality so much to the point where he would never really take you down to use his own jujitsu. Yeah. And 
he would stand there and box with you whether it was a good idea for him or not. He's going to stand there and yell at you and do the same stuff over and over again. And it worked at times where managed to draw people into the kind of fight they knew they didn't want to be in, but they couldn't help getting sucked in by that tractor beam. And Nate Diaz, at times in his career, has looked very similar to that. But honestly, what I saw from him in the Anthony Pettis fight was a guy who was capable of fighting a little smarter than that and fighting to his strengths a little better. So that, to me, is the big question. Because Jorge Masvidal, for all the the tough guy, street Jesus shit that he pulls, he still is a smart tactician and is able to look at a fight and see where his advantage in that fight might lie. And he does not fight everybody the exact same. He can, he can adjust his approach uh, depending on what he's looking at. That's what makes me give him a little bit of the edge here. Uh, but I don't know. Nate Diaz, he's been full of surprises yeah. in the last few years. So I, it's, it's tough for me to call. Yeah, I don't really know what's going to happen. I, I agree with you that it seems like some of the physical attributes here might favor Jorge Masvidal. Uh, but I also think that the fact that many of us expect this fight to be contested largely on the feet opens the door for Nate Diaz to suck Jorge Masvidal into a Diaz-style fight. Like, we know that's one of the things the Diaz's are really good at, is tricking guys into having this fight where the Diaz volume basically takes over and they they, they can't keep up, essentially. Yeah, weaponized pace, in yeah. a way. And, and you could see the, this particular matchup of styles resulting in that kind of a fight, where maybe Jorge Masvidal just can't match the output of Nate Diaz, and so it becomes more of a Diaz-centric style fight. Uh, I think if it were to wind up on the ground at any point, you might also have to give the the stylistic edge to Nate Diaz, just because we've seen uh, you know him be dangerous in that area before. Uh, it's sort of like the the weird uh, dichotomy almost of the Diaz brothers. Like they want to box with you, but it's almost like they are much better on the ground, yeah, as good as they are on the feet. They'd love to box with you until you become desperate for something else and shoot in for a takedown. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a good fight. I really don't know what's going to happen. I'm glad that it's back on or was never off or whatever at this point. Uh, I will see you at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah. Can't wait to eat a ton of wings. We will watch it. Just hate myself in the morning. But Ben, as all of this stuff was happening, the aggressively online oh, no. former... Multi-division UFC champion Don't Conor McGregor. Oh, there it is. Not only did the the New York Times, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, name him as being connected to these two sexual assault allegations and investigations at home in Ireland, Conor McGregor holds a press conference of his own. Yeah. In Russia. Mm-hmm. Flies to Russia, we are are led to believe, solely to have this press conference where he announces, out of the blue, he's pinpointed a date in January for his return. He doesn't have an opponent yet, but there's a couple of people who are the leading candidates to fight Conor McGregor when he comes back. Conor McGregor wants to think about 2020 like a quote-unquote season, where he fights several times during the year. He wants to fight someone in January. He wants to fight the winner of the BMF title. Uh, let's say middle of the year, and then at the end of the year, he would like to, I believe, fight for a title uh, or uh, something of of that nature. Again, like the Nate Diaz stories, a lot of different ways we could go with the discussion of Conor McGregor and his what I have written down in my notes as a sad Russian press conference. Yeah, I believe somebody threw a water bottle at him mm-hmm. midway through. 
Uh, oh, they, they thrower becomes the throwy. <laughs> Bottom rail on top now. I guess I will start here. Uh, we don't have an opponent for Conor McGregor in January, which makes his announcement seem more like sleight of hand than anything else. He wants us to stop talking about the fact that he is allegedly under investigation for these two different sexual assaults in Ireland. It seems like uh, Donald Cerrone and Justin Gaethje are the two leading candidates to fight him in January. Do you even have any interest in watching Conor McGregor fight while the sexual assault stuff kind of swirls in the background? No, absolutely not. I don't really either, and it seems like a weird move to try to book him in a fight, especially since the way that the Irish criminal justice system works, we are led to believe. We are not experts in that. Uh, But it seems like Conor McGregor could get snatched up at any point to have to go have a trial, right? Yes, at least based on what I've read about it, especially when you got two different investigations ongoing about it. Also... It's a weird move if you don't want to talk about it, which it seems like is the position of both the UFC and Conor McGregor. Uh, I saw on Twitter somebody translating it for like getting their Russian friend. I think it was uh, uh, and now I can't remember who it was. The got a Russian friend to translate a remark from a press conference. So somebody tried to ask him in a roundabout way about the reports that he's involved in the sexual assault allegation. And whoever was the moderator or something stepped in and was like, no, we're not doing that. And if you don't want to talk, one thing, maybe don't be out here doing press conferences. But then you're right. It does seem like the worse the situation gets for him and the more we hear about the bad situation he's in, the more media friendly he wants to suddenly try to be or the more out there. If Conor McGregor gets... Wrapped up in a situation where he is under investigation after a series of like 12 bodies are found around Dublin, Ireland, then there'll be a media Q&A about his next fight the next day. Yeah. And that seems like a weird move to me because you're kind of daring us at that point. We got to ask you about it. We got and we got to ask the UFC about it. We got to ask the UFC. How do you justify putting this guy in another fight and promoting him as a fighter when he's got this other stuff hanging over his head? You got to. You have to have an answer for that some way. And maybe a highly dissatisfying answer or it may be a just trying to ignore it kind of answer. But you ha- you are going to force that issue out into the public by booking him into another fight. Yeah. I, I hope that I'm not just letting my own personal feelings color my perception of the issue. But it feels like he has fallen so far in terms of not only the level of his celebrity and his star but also just like the interest of the MMA community and the amount of bullshit that we're going to put up with from Conor McGregor. Yeah, the, that amount of bullshit used to be super high. It used to we be were really unlimited. Up, yes. We would almost take anything that he did and be like, well, he's a genius. Yep. Look what he's done now. Changed the game. Changing that he's bringing the discussion back around to McGregor. What a, what a genius. And now we're just sort of like, oh, maybe he's actually just like a guy who can't keep his life together. And well, so, like, yeah, he is always getting a lot of attention, but almost never for the right reason. Well, especially now, it's become, like, a parody of himself. Yeah. The aggressively online aspect in particular. And so, I don't know, if you try to turn around right now and book this guy in a fight, for one, like you said, I just don't feel the interest in watching it. Because you're telling me that this guy who is facing ongoing open sexual assault cases back home more than one of them got involved in another one while he was reportedly under investigation for a different one 
how am I supposed to feel good about paying money to watch that guy fight, for one thing? Yeah. And then how are any of us supposed to feel like we can just put that out of our minds and sit down and enjoy the fight without pressing you for an answer about why you're doing it? Yeah, it seems like a very strange move. I also think that, uh, you know, if, if we are on on the level with the idea that the two prospective opponents are Cerrone and Gaethje, I feel like there's kind of a wide gulf between those two opponents. And the guy that Conor McGregor winds up in a fight against in January is going to tell us a lot about how everybody's feeling about Conor McGregor at this stage. Because if you put him out there with Donald Cerrone, Cerrone is dangerous. Cerrone could take him down. Cerrone could, could triangle him. But... Matchup of styles-wise, seems like Cerrone is an advantageous matchup for Conor McGregor at this point in their careers. If you match uh, Conor McGregor up with Don Cerrone, you're telling me you want Conor McGregor to go out there and start somebody. You want to be in the Conor McGregor business again. To get back in in this conversation. If you put him out there against Justin Gaethje, that's way more of a, man, we're winding up both these toys and turning them loose and whoever wins will deal with it. That's also more of a situation where you're, you're going to put him in a fight with the guy who very recently was out there publicly on Twitter being like, you're a bad person. You're a bad human being. Yeah. And the subtext of that being, we know what you're dealing with back home in Ireland. The Irish media can't report it, but we all know here what the situation is. And you, you're roping that into the conversation if you match him up with Justin Gaethje. There's no way Justin Gaethje shows up for media events prior to that fight and doesn't get asked a whole bunch. So... Now the UFC has given you an opportunity to punch the guy who you say is a bad human being and there's all this sexual assault stuff going on. How do you feel about that? And just in case he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to be like, you know what? They said they'd prefer for me not to talk about it, so I'm not I'll just... I'm looking forward to the fight. Yeah. That doesn't seem like Justin Gaethje's personality. No. You're going to make that into the story, which then makes me, again, wonder, is the UFC just willing to make any kind of damn money? Yeah. Well, and again, I guess we should point out right before we move on, Conor McGregor had this press conference where he announced his return date, and then the UFC came out immediately after that and said, yeah, we've talked about him. We've talked to him about that date, but nothing is even close to being done. Yeah. So there's that. All right, we're going to take this question from Lord Grantham Guy. Or Lord Grantham guy, depending on where you want to put the emphasis. Okay, okay. Holy shit, have you guys seen the fight card for UFC whatever fight night Diaz versus Masvidal? It's actually a pay-per-view. Moving on. But by (laughs) UFC standards, this event is stacked tighter than Colby Covington's asshole. Wow, okay. When he walks into ATT. Uh, Diaz versus Masvidal. That took a turn. Diaz versus Masvidal will be awesome, but give me Gillespie versus Lee to get my hype train running. Gillespie beats anyone in the top 10 not named Habib, but good goddamn, I want to see that fight. What's the ceiling of the greatest fisherman of MMA? Let me ask you this first, Ben. UFC 244, which is the fight card that we're talking about here with Diaz versus versus Masvidal. So not a fight night, a pay-per-view. What fight are you looking forward to the most besides the main event? Because it is... As Lord Grantham Guy, or Lord Grantham Guy, mentions, it's stacked. It's a good card. It is. What's your, what's your pick here? What's the Ben Folk's main event? Other than Chad Nundas versus Diabolical Wings? Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to happen. Uh, Probably going to be some forehead sweat. You know I love me some Gregor Gillespie. I do, yeah. Squaring off with Kevin Lee in a lightweight fight, the curtain jerker on pay-per-view. And... Matchup-wise, that one feels pretty interesting to me. I'll, I'll be very interested to see what Gregor Gillespie can do with Kevin Lee. Because if he goes in there and absolutely trucks Kevin Lee, and honestly, I think he does. I don't know about 
completely dominates him, but I think he wins that fight. Yeah. And if he does, then maybe finally the conversation starts to build a little bit where it gets harder and harder to ignore Gregor Gillespie at lightweight. Because as we've talked about many times on this very program, it, he seems like a victim of the UFC schedule in a lot of ways. Because there's just so much going on. There's no time to really sit and let some stuff sink into your mind or some... or to sit before a fight and really build the anticipation around more than just you know the main event when you have just a week to build up to it. And Gregor Gillespie is one of these guys who seems super good. Seems like he might have exactly the kind of style that could eventually give uh, the champion problems. And yet, it's like the UFC forgets about him. He shows up, especially when you need somebody in New York. Uh, he's going to go in there, he's going to fight, and then we'll see you again in three to five months, Gregor yeah. Gillespie. And... He seems like an exciting guy to watch, a, a fun personality. He's got the whole fisherman thing. You could be doing a lot more with it. And so maybe if he goes out there and smashes somebody like Kevin Lee as the first fight on the pay-per-view, it gets a little harder to ignore. But then also, you turn around and you give me Derek Lewis versus uh, Black Oi Ivanov. Yeah, the return of the Black Beast is really flying under the radar heading into UFC 244. And yet, yeah, like you said, second fight in on a pay-per-view card, that one feels like it's going to be teed up. For a knockout. But also, it doesn't it seem like it could be... I look at that fight on paper and I go, is this going to be the good kind of heavyweight fight yeah. or the other kind of heavyweight fight? No, I agree with you there. If I hear the words round two, I'm going to be pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> you got that fight, which I think is great. I agree with you. Gregor Gillespie, Kevin Lee is going to be a crackerjack. You got Stephen Thompson against Quiet Assassin, Vicente Luque. The here good guy championship. At welterweight. Uh, you got Gaslam versus Till, obviously, as your co-main middleweight fight. Uh, Darren Till moving up to to take on Calvin Gasolin, which fireworks will probably ensue in that one. You also got, on the preliminary card, Corey Anderson versus Johnny yeah. Walker. Johnny Walker on the damn prelims. Which is an interesting matchup because we just saw Dominic Reyes knock out Chris Weidman, kind of assert his status as potentially the top light heavyweight contender for John Jones at this point. Uh, Corey Anderson strikes me as a good test for Johnny Walker here at this stage in his career. And if Johnny Walker can come out and do something amazing in this fight, uh, he at the least probably moves neck and neck with Dominic Reyes, maybe passes him up depending on how exciting this thing is. No. To uh, It's tough to beat uh, first round knockout of well unless champion. you're Johnny Walker we've seen what this guy can do yeah. going out here with 36 second flying knees and spinning back fists and shit uh, a minute and 57 KO elbow of Khalil Roundtree Jr. like don't tell me Dom or Johnny Walker can't do something amazing he could he can doesn't Corey Anderson feel like the exact kind of opponent to just let all the air out of that hype balloon absolutely it's your classic UFC contender matchup where it's like We've been building Johnny Walker. We think he can do some good things. And now we have put him in there with an absolute soul-sucking machine in Beast in 25-8. This is the thing where you're walking through the forest and everything is going fine. And you're on your way to the capture the treasure or whatever. And then a giant net falls on you. Corey Anderson is the net. Yeah. He is the human net in this division. And... This is the one where you find out. And I, people complained about that booking at first because being like, oh, man, you have Johnny Walker, this fun, exciting guy in the division that really needs new, fun, exciting talent. And then you're just going to have somebody who might blanket him for three rounds. That's no fun. And yet, I do agree, if we are seriously going to talk about Johnny Walker as a title contender, we might as well find out now if he can beat a guy like Corey Anderson. Because if you can't, 
then we don't need to talk about you versus John Jones anymore. This question is from uh, noted English character actor, actor Donald Pleasance. Okay. He writes, what kind of ornate Don or Dan, what kind of ornate Dan has Damian Maya earned for his BJJ belt uh, with his tap out of Ben Askren? May I suggest a stripe made from Ben Askren's Mizzou singlet? But um, Diego Sanchez discussed. So, Ben, this past weekend, oh, man. Uh, Damian Maya and Ben Askren meet up over there in Singapore, UFC on ESPN Plus 20, get themselves into like kind of a fun fight, uh, grappler versus grappler with a lot of striking mixed in there. Damian Maya eventually chokes Ben Askren unconscious with a rear naked choke just about four minutes into the third round here. Uh, this is your open forum. Because I know you probably... Oh, this one. This one made my heart glad. Walked down to a Wi-Fi hotspot over there in Southampton to watch this thing. You uh, know what? Watching this fight in England turned out to be kind of difficult. They... My ES, ESPN Plus wouldn't work over there. Hmm. I tried to log into ESPN Plus and they're like, nope, blocked in your area. I tried to watch clips that the UFC was posting to Twitter blocked in my area. I had to just watch it from other people posting it on Twitter until I could get home and catch up on it. But man, I by the time I was in a I was in a hotel in London getting ready to fly back by the time that this fight took place and I saw it and I was just like, oh oh no way. No way. Demi and Maya went out there. Didn't just win. Yeah. Choked this motherfucker out. Yep. Third straight win in a row. Yeah. <laughs> this was an interesting Come on, man. This was an interesting fight because Damian Maya went out there seemingly with a game plan of like, all right, I'm going to strike with this fool, and if he want, if he is able to take me down, then I will do my jujitsu thing. Ben Askren may be a little bit more desperate for a takedown, although he did, you know, mix in some good things in his striking game. Also, felt like the scrambling session that these guys had near the end of the second round was sort of like worth the price of admission alone if you came to this thing to see some dope grappling. But at the same time, like Ben Askren does succeed in getting Damian Maya down only to sort of uh, get Damian Maya in yeah. a way. And the thing that is perhaps more impressive than anything else about Damian Maya with his longevity and, uh, you know, he's, he's 41. He's 41 years old, his UFC career. He's out here choking out dudes who not only know exactly what he wants to do, but are themselves master grapplers. Yes, which is exactly. like uh, almost mind-boggling in an age when you know you don't see a ton of pure jujitsu anymore at the highest level of mixed martial arts when everybody kind of knows the same moves. Yes, and so for Damian Maya to go out there and pull this shit off against not only other professional fighters who know what he's trying to do, but against a guy like Ben Askren, who is essentially a pure grappler himself, is mind-boggling well it's really impressive because it's not only that they know what you want to do in a general sense at this point for Demi and Maya you have a ton of tape to look at a ton of evidence for what he might do in different situations because he's been in the UFC for so damn long and so and, and yet he worked with that his comments after the fight where he was saying that he knew what Ben Askren was going to be expecting when they hit the ground. He was going to be expecting him to do you know, this kind of stuff. So instead, I switched up to this kind of stuff, which I haven't done much since my old BJJ days. I mean, the example that to have, just to have that many tools in the toolbox where you can know, okay, this guy has seen this. He's going to be expecting this. He hasn't really seen much of this. He won't be expecting it. And so I can I can trick him there. And then actually being able to go out there and pull it off against a guy like Ben Askren. 
that's super impressive. Also, when he gets that choke, he locks in that rear naked choke. And Ben Askren is doing the thing that they tell you to do. He pulls down the hand. He's fighting the hand thinking like, all right, he can't choke me with one arm. Except that he fucking can. Because he's Demian fucking Maya, Chad. And he doesn't need a whole lot of time to do it either. He gets that, that arm across the throat there. You're, you're pulling down on the other hand thinking that, okay, I'm going to at least buy myself enough time here to start working and escape. But you don't have the time. Against almost everybody else, even in the UFC, you have some time there to work. And Demon Maya can squeeze on that so strong, with even with just one arm really latched onto it, that you don't have as much time as you think you do to work that escape from there. It's super impressive to me. And... Also, like, somebody asked a question in the mailbag where they're like, hey, can we stop calling Demi and Maya the best grappler? And look at a guy like Khabib. And it's like, okay, I understand what you're saying there. Because Khabib is a grappling-based guy who is dominating people. And yet, he's doing basically the thing that we've seen for decades. Where yeah. a guy who's a better wrestler than other people can take them down, beat them up, and control them enough to where eventually he just breaks through or grinds them down and or is so far ahead on points that it doesn't matter. Demi Maya is like the last of the specialists, really. Like a guy who's going to go out there and do this thing that you shouldn't be able to still do. You sh- In the year of our Lord, 2019, you shouldn't be able to just go out there with just jiu-jitsu and beat people like this at the age of 40 fucking one. Yeah. And yet he's doing it. Here's a question from Ben Kennedy, who writes, Do you think Ben Askren regrets coming to the UFC? Would he not have been better off leaving us all to wonder what if? That's an interesting question. Although, would he have also wondered what if? Probably. I would think so. A a competitive guy like Ben Askren, uh, who is in his own right 35 years old, I should mention, like, you know, we know Ben Askren talks a good game. We know Ben Askren uh, was... 18 and 0 in his previous career before coming to the UFC. At the same time, and I say this a lot about these guys that have these high level amateur wrestling backgrounds, those guys are like bred and reared from a young age to just be goddamn competitive about everything. Yes. And I think if Ben Askren had walked away in 2017 with a long career in Bellator and a long career, shorter career, but like, you know, extended run through one FC. Uh, he always would have wondered, like, what if I got the chance to fight Raleigh Lawler? What if I got the chance to fight Damian Maya? What if I got the chance to fight Jorge Masvidal? And I think, like, as hard as it is for him maybe to lose two in a row, uh, he he knows now, at least. And, like, it's it's well, it's got to be a the- cold comfort, but at the same time, like... He was going to do this. Like, he needed to do this. Don't you think he's telling himself that this... The whole story is not yet written here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw that after the uh, Masvidal flying knee KO, the first loss of his professional career. And, you know, to his credit, Askren has handled almost all this stuff and did the same thing after this Damian Maia fight about as well as you possibly could. But, like, you saw him immediately sort of shift gears to this mindset of being like, well, I lost a lot in wrestling. I experienced a lot of losses in wrestling, so these losses don't even really bug me. Which is like, from going... Going from 19 and 0 to immediately like, hey man, losing is no big deal. Everybody loses sometimes. Like, I feel like there's sort of a defense mechanism yeah. happening, happening there psychologically. And then in the wake of this Damian Maya one, he comes out and is like, maybe I was just overconfident. Like I thought that I would be able to handle him on the ground. He got me, choked me out. Okay. I feel like Ben Askren is planning on moving forward with this thing, maybe getting it back on track. What about you though? There's a lot of naysayers out there basically being like Ben Askren is done. Like, we've seen what we need to see from him. 
next. I don't almost. know. I don't know about done, but right now it does make you look at the big picture and go. Kind of seems like he benefited from weaker competition outside the UFC because as soon as he got in the UFC, you mentioned two losses in a row. He's one and two in the UFC, and the one wasn't exactly like he dominated the fight. Yeah, the one he could have easily lost that as well. It could have been stopped. And when he when it was finally stopped, we all agree that it was a bad stoppage, and he benefited from that. So right now, you step back and you look at where we are. It certainly seems like he was never quite as good as he told us he was, or that we thought he might be. I mean, you could give him the benefit of the doubt and be like, well, by the time he showed up in the UFC, maybe he wasn't as good as we thought he might be. But I don't, if you're Ben Askren now, you need to beat somebody. Yep. Doesn't have to be some doesn't have to be like one or two in the division or anything, or even top five, top ten in the division. You just need to beat somebody and stop the slide. But uh, I don't know. It I can see how psychologically it probably gets more difficult when you go in there thinking, I absolutely cannot afford to lose another one. We got two Greg Hardy related topics that we need to discuss. Oh, okay. Number one. That's how long we've been off, huh? Yeah. Greg Hardy goes out there on the undercard of uh, Chris Wyman against Dominic Reyes, UFC on ESPN 6, for a fight against the combat wombat, Ben Sassoli. Another instance where we're gonna just going to go ahead and put Greg Hardy on national TV. It's like we can't have a national television card without Greg Hardy. Got to nope. have him on there. This one ends in a no contest. Originally a win for Greg Hardy, uh, overturned the same night to a no contest because he used... Uh, an asthma inhaler between rounds. I think it was probably, it was between rounds two and three. Yes. Is that when he used it? Uh, so, again, kind of a lot to unpack just from that situation because Greg Hardy has asthma. The, whatever the chemical that he uses in the asthma inhaler is listed in his USADA profile. He has an exemption for it. I don't know if we ever got to the bottom of whether or not it was specifically prohibited via Massachusetts state law, you know, uh, Massachusetts State Athletic Commission rules, because we're at TD Garden in Boston for this thing. His corner asked a ringside commission official. They were, you know, got permission to use it, uses the inhaler, goes out there, finishes the fight, wins it. Obviously, everybody in the world is like, that's bullshit. We immediately overturn this thing into a no contest. So Greg Hardy now, he is five total fights deep in his MMA career. He's had, uh, or no, I'm sorry, he's seven fights into his MMA career. He's four fights into his UFC career. He's 5-1-1 one, and one overall. But in those UFC appearances, one DQ against Alan Crowder back in January of this year. All these fights happened this year, so he's... If nothing else, keeping a torrid pace. Yes. Uh, and then the most recent fight, Ben Sassoli, a no contest overturned. That's not a great. That's not a great uh, percentage. No. And even if this one hadn't been overturned, when you look at what it was, which is Greg Hardy fighting yet another hand-picked opponent, a guy brought in here by the UFC because they wanted him to lose and they wanted to see Greg Hardy knock somebody out so we can continue getting hyped on the Greg Hardy train. And you bring this guy in, and Greg Hardy wins initially an unimpressive decision over that guy. Yeah. No, that's the, like, while this fight is going on, even above and beyond anything having to do with inhaler gate. Uh, no, we're not doing the gate thing with everything. As I was watching this, I was like, why are we doing this? 
why is Greg Hardy constantly on my television having the other kind of heavyweight fight? And like fucking 40 years since Watergate, we're still just attaching gate at the end of it. Inhaler gate. No. No, no, no. Asthma gate. I do not. I will not go along with that. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking before all this happened where you're going through all this shit for this guy. Every time he fights, he gets booed by the crowd when he fights. You got to answer media questions about it all the time and get increasingly pissed off about it if you're the UFC. All the shit that you're going to take. And you're taking it for this guy? Yeah. For this? This is what you're getting in the bargain? I mean, he showed like some improvement. You could see that he's still a, a work in progress as an MMA fighter. But you're putting him in there against hand-picked opponents, and he's still not looking that great. Yeah. I just it just doesn't seem worth it to me. I agree with you. It's it's, it's again, I just can't figure it out exactly what we're doing here. It's almost like we decided we were going to promote Greg Hardy and we will uh stubbornly stick to that idea come hell or high water. The more people tell us that it was a mistake to stick to that idea, the more adamant we are about sticking with it. But also Remember that thing we were talking about with Colby Covington? About how uh, when he was getting screwed over by the UFC, then he had cause to wish maybe he hadn't been or hadn't based everything on being such a colossal asshole. Because even when people were like, yeah, Colby Covington's getting screwed, but also, fuck Colby Covington because I don't like him. Yeah. Greg Hardy may be in a similar situation here because a lot of people could look at this and be like, eh, he kind of got done wrong in this whole asthma inhaler situation. But also, fuck Greg Hardy. Who right. cares? Like, I don't, I'm not going to have sympathy for Greg Hardy. Yeah, there, if it's George St. Pierre over yes. there taking his asthma inhaler, we would probably be like, well, George is sick, you guys. Yeah, come on. George needs a little it, bit of help. It's not fair. Yeah. No, or if it were so many other people, even if it was somebody who people felt neutral about, they'd be like, okay, he's, he's a sympathetic character. But when it's Greg Hardy, people are like, it was wrong and also I don't care. Yeah. Plot twist, though. Okay. Junior Dos Santos out of his scheduled fight against Alexander Volkov on November 9th at UFC on ESPN Plus 21, which I believe is over there in Russia. Greg Hardy stepping in on short notice, which is a fight that we are led to believe he wanted. I think, you know, from a competitive standpoint, that's probably understandable. He wants to turn around and get the taste out of his mouth from this uh, overturned no contest against Ben Sassoli. But from like a UFC standpoint, this is another situation with Greg Hardy where I don't totally get what we're doing here. And like maybe it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't type situation because we've been complaining that Greg Hardy's getting all these hand-picked opponents. Now he's going to get a much tougher, much more experienced opponent in Alexander Volkov. But at the same time, I'm like, we just spent like five fights putting Greg Hardy on, on the regular ESPN on television, acting like he's going to be this star, like we're going to build him up. Now, on short notice, we're sending him out there to fight Alexander Volkov, who is 30 and 7, has 37 professional MMA fights, had won a farmer's grip of fights in a row until he met up with Derek Lewis in October of 2018. Are we putting Greg Hardy in this fight because we think he can win it? And that springboards Greg Hardy into like legitimate heavyweight contender uh, conversation, or are we putting Greg Hardy in this fight because after the Ben Sassoli thing happened, we were like, "Ah, fuck it!" Like we did our best here. <laughs> uh, do you see this, this question that you have here from Rob Walden? Asked this this point and makes a uh, a pro wrestling comparison here. Bring it on! Uh, you guys, this is from Rob Walden again. You guys talk a lot about the UFC's weird insistence on being in the Greg Hardy business, but the news of him facing Alexander Volkov in Russia on 18 days' notice makes me wonder if management has also soured on him. 
Volkov might not be title contender material, but I've got to think he's a massive favorite if for no other reason than he's a 37-fight vet competing at home against a dude who's still basically a beginner at MMA. This reminds me of an old pro wrestling trick where a feud isn't getting over like the promotion hoped, so they hotshot the blow-off match on a random TV segment and move on. Hardy hasn't gotten over with fans on any level, and after more shenanigans, this time with the inhaler, plus a snoozer performance against a hand-picked tomato can, I could see why Dana might be ready to cut his losses. Thoughts? And that's not a bad theory. My thought, though, is I go straight Occam's razor with this shit and go, it's the UFC solving its old calendar problem the only way it knows how. Oh, you got a guy pulled out of this fight. We need that fight to hold together. We don't have, we're spread so thin. We don't have enough people that we can just move around that easily. We got to keep this shit together by any means necessary. This guy says he'll do it, even though it goes contrary to the plan that we were clearly working on. Fuck it. Let's go ahead and do it. We need to plug this hole. There's yeah. there's a there's a hole in the dike. We got to put our finger in it. If Greg Hardy is willing, then fine. We'll let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the easiest explanation. That's probably the right explanation. At the same time, it strikes me as both... Uh, baffling and also classically UFC. Yeah. To just kind of like take this, you know, if you remove all of the, uh, the other stuff, all of the like negative stuff around Greg Hardy and just think of him like, okay, he's this MMA prospect that they were trying to bring along. Now all of a sudden we get to the point where they essentially, it seems like they're just being like, oh, fuck it. Yeah. Just smash it. Smash this thing we built with a hammer because or, we because of sheer uh, the sheer demands on our, on us that we've created with our schedule. And this is just a force of habit. At some point. All right, let's talk a little bit about what happened with Chris Weidman. Goes over there to fight uh, Dominic Reyes in Massachusetts, moving up to light heavyweight. He had talked a big game, wanted to beat Anderson Silva and John Jones, the two legends in his weight classes during his career. This one did not go that well for Chris Weidman. Knocked out via punch by Dominic Reyes a minute and 43 seconds into the first round. Here is a question from Brian Mills. He writes, look, I'm aware that schadenfreude is pretty gross, and I'm not proud to admit it. But there are a few things I enjoy more than seeing Chris Weidman or Frankie Edgar get the shit beat out of them. I so thoroughly enjoyed this main event. I know I can't be the only one. Have you either of you ever found yourselves taking joy in certain fighters' uh, misfortune? Well, we just had a lengthy discussion there about Greg Hardy. Yes. So, uh, but what did Chris Weidman do? Or Frankie Edgar, of all people? I know. That seems like two weird guys that you want to see get the shit beat out of you. But again, to each his own. Yeah, I guess so. This, in retrospect is the outcome that was always going to happen of Chris Weidman moving up to 205 to fight. Oh, it's all so clear in retrospect. A straight-up killer like Dominic Reyes. But at the same time, what a, like this is one of those Johnny Hendricks-style falls for Chris Weidman where this dude is on top of the world. He's doing everything right. We think he might be the new guy at this weight class. All of a sudden, we turn around. He is 1-5. and five dating back to December of 2015, and he has been knocked out in all those losses. Damn. Every one of them. Damn. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it'd be like that in this sport, Chad. That is the cruel thing about fight sports, is that you get so few opportunities to compete, and once you get on a a downward spiral, it can be hard to pull yourself out, especially... When the way it works in a fight promotion where you've reached this height, therefore you're also getting paid a certain amount of money, you've got a certain amount of shine attached to your name, and they're not going to give you a whole lot of easy fights after that. So if you're going through a tough time, it's not like you get to 
fall all the way back to the bottom of the rankings and start over again and, and build your way up there, they're going to put you in some tough fights. Yeah. Because of who you are yeah. by that point. I've seen it posited online. I don't know if I agree with it or disagree with it yet, though. At UFC 194, uh, Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold had this absolute war that ends via fourth round TKO. Luke Rockhold wins the UFC middleweight title. And Chris Weidman, well, you could say the same thing about both these guys, maybe. They were, you know, Chris Weidman at least was never quite the same again. Uh, I don't know if I buy that that one fight like broke Chris Weidman in some way or like ended his, the, the positive things that he could do in his MMA career, but it's just a very, very stark contrast before that fight and what has happened after it. Do you keep booking Chris Weidman fights at this point? I feel like I've seen online the idea of Weidman versus Silva three at 205 or Weidman versus Rockhold rematch also at 205, either of which it makes some kind of sense to me, but also yeah. aren't the kind of fights where I'm like, you got to give it to me. It's mine. If you don't book those fights, I'm probably okay with it. Yeah. But then if Chris Weidman is insistent that he wants to keep fighting, yeah, I would rather see him run it back with somebody else who's gone through some tough times than for you to look around and be like, let's see, who's another young killer who can stand to make a little bit of his name off of Chris Weidman? I don't want to see that. No. That would be unseemly. We don't want that. Uh, did you get a chance to watch Douglas Lima beat Rory McDonald in the finals of the Bellator Grand Prix? I've seen the highlights. Eh, then you probably saw it. Yeah. Five-round unanimous decision win for Douglas Lima. A good fight. like a, a you know Not a fight that we're going to be talking about five years from now, but uh, a hard-nosed, technical five-round fight between two of the best welterweights in the world in Douglas Lima and, and Rory McDonald. Douglas Lima, of course, not only becomes the Bellator welterweight Grand Prix champion. He becomes the the outright Bellator welterweight champion and is another one of these guys uh, who, if he was fighting in the UFC, would probably get a lot more of the due that he deserves, frankly, yeah. as one of the top 170 pounders in the world. Hard to deny at this point that he belongs on the same list as, you know, Kamaru Usman, Colby Covington, Tyron Woodley. You know, Douglas Lima is right in that pack of guys. And yet, you're over there doing it on zone. Yep, doing it on zone. What do you think about Rory McDonald? His contract is up now with Bellator. Uh, he didn't necessarily look disinterested in this fight. It was a hard-fought fight, uh, and he didn't either. He didn't look bad either. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if the Rory McDonald in Bellator experiment, experiment. I'm sorry, uh, quite worked out like we thought it might. He's only 30 years old, obviously at this point, but is a guy who's been around the block to the tune of 28 professional fights, obviously has been in the gym training since he was about 14. And so uh, to go over there to Bellator and uh, lose in the finals of this welterweight Grand Prix tournament and now be out of his contract, hard for me to track the future career trajectory of Rory McDonald at this point. I just, I don't know where the guy winds up at this point. I mean, point. saying that it didn't go the way we thought it would. If you had told me beforehand, okay, Rory McDonald's going to go over there to Bellator, find God, Feel God talking to him in fights and not feel like he wants to hurt people quite as much anymore. I I would have not seen that coming. Yeah. Greg Hardy is not the only heavyweight prospect who got himself into a into a weird situation. Did you see Jake Hager? Uh, yes. The big okay. hurt. First of all, pro or con, trying to call Jake Hager the big hurt. 
Is that what we're doing now? It's his new nickname. Like Frank Thomas? Exactly. There's only one big hurt. Exactly. And he's out there on TV pitching uh, testosterone uh, boosters. Sexual enhancements. Uh-huh. I don't think you could take Frank Thomas's nickname, man. No. I think that it is. You got to do a whole, whole hell of a lot more if you want to take Frank Thomas's nickname. Yeah, like it's one of these nicknames where it's like kind of distinctive and unique, and you associate it in your mind with Frank Thomas. Like you can't just roll up in here and jack Frank Thomas's nickname. No. Although I will say, after I saw Jake Hager uh, knee this dude in the nuts three times in the first round, I was like, okay, the Big Hurt actually kind of fits. Okay, not a terrible nickname. That was going to be my next question: Is did we start trying to call him the Big Hurt before or after? No, he it was destroyed before they announced testicles. him as the Big Hurt on his way to the cage for this fight. Well, and then he goes out there and he does that. It's hard out here for these heavyweight prospects, man. It's really not that hard, no, man. Like, Especially not when they're serving you up with yeah, fights against Ben Zasoli and set up Anthony Garrett or whoever this guy was. Just don't do shit like that. Uh, Joe Lozon goes out there and gets a big win. Ben in Boston, a win that he sorely needed at this point uh, in his UFC career, takes out Jonathan Pierce from the Contender Series via first-round TKO. Uh, looked very emotional. Joe Lozon did either even like before the fight and after. I kind of thought we might get a retirement. Uh, announcement we didn't uh but we did after the the event was over dana white comes to the post-fight press conference and essentially says i had an agreement with joe lozon that he was going to retire after this and it seemed like the future was still very much in doubt despite the win here's a quote or a question from kevin schuler who writes so joe lozon was uncertain about his fighting future after his victory in boston dana white responds by saying he is going to force joe to retire definitely independent contractors right yeah see that's one where you i don't see on what grounds you can be like i made a, a verbal deal with this guy that he has to stop this job forever because otherwise what like, are are you saying that uh, you would have given him a different fight? You wouldn't have given him such a... You would have given him a tougher fight or worse fight in a worse location? Because then you're saying something I don't think you meant to say. Or you're, you're letting us behind the curtain a little more than I think that you intended to, if that's what you're saying. It, again, if they are independent contractors, if that's the way it works. I don't get to tell my plumber that he can come over here and take this job, but it has to be his last one. Yeah, I agree with you. And Dana White has broken enough promises in his day. And just like uh, nobody's going to feel bad for Colby Tuffington or Greg Hardy if they get screwed. Nobody's going to be like, oh, he didn't keep his word to Dana White. Well, that's just, of, of all the people, to not to like be on the, the, the harmful end of some dishonesty. Boo-hoo. Yeah, that's not going to work. We also finally got to see Yair Rodriguez against Jeremy Stevens at this uh, UFC Fight Night event in Boston. It's the co-main event. Yair Rodriguez defeats Jeremy Stevens via unanimous decision 29-28 times 3. However, uh, they, these guys were originally scheduled for a five-round main event down there in Mexico City. Of course, it ended, what, 15 seconds into the first round because Yair Rodriguez accidentally poked Jeremy Stevens in the eye. This was one of those fights where these two guys finally get together. It's a great fight. I'm glad they did it. Uh, it was definitely worth calling a do-over for. But at the same time, Jeremy Stevens is kind of coming on near the end of this thing. I don't know how it would have gone if they had fought two more rounds. Are you going to enforce Stockton rules here? <laughs> I'm not saying we need to book this again because of how much trouble it was the first damn time. I'm just saying it's it's always going to be floating out there in the ether. What if these guys had fought two more rounds in Mexico City? I do think this is maybe one example where 
their sheer hatred for each other did contribute to it being such a good fight. Because there was a moment there where it looked like Jeremy Stevens was done after those body shots. You usually don't see people be able to recover from body shots like that. Yeah. And it was as if you could see the burning fire of his hatred for Yair Rodriguez drive him to continue just enough in this fight to stay in it and come back in the third round. If that's against somebody who he feels neutral towards, I don't know if that happens. Not today, motherfucker, kind of moment for Jeremy Stevens, even though he doesn't win the fight. He doesn't need to go away either. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about this week? I know I wanted to, before we wrap up, England. England. What's the favorite thing you did over there in England? Uh, I had a delightful time. Uh, I, you know what I really enjoyed? Went to, to Scotland, to Edinburgh there, and had a, had a good time there. That was a lot of fun and just a, a really great city to be in. I went to see Southampton FC play Leicester City there in St. Mary's Stadium in Southampton. And I didn't know I was going to be a witness to history. The worst home loss in top flight English football history. <laughs> 120 years or whatever of them doing this shit. This is the worst home loss anybody has ever suffered. And I was there for it. Did you get run out of the joint? Were you like standing in the stands being like, hey, compadres, it's me, American guy. I'm here to witness this football game for the first time. And then everyone would be like, get this guy out of here well, right now. I, look at this bad luck motherfucker they did bringing not ex- this pox on our house. They did not really expect to win this one, okay. I think, based on... But they, don't, they didn't expect to lose this badly. And... One of the things that's weird as an American sports fan is you go to something like this. One thing, they had an entrance just for visiting fans. Mm. Fans of the visiting team. Like a separate entrance just for them. And they sit in one section to keep them away from everybody else. And I went to the bar beforehand that I was told, okay, this is where the Southampton fans go drink before the game near the, the stadium. And there's a sign out front being like, home fans only. <laughs> like they, they have experienced enough violence and unrest because of football matches that they are not taking any chances of that shit anymore. And so that was kind of weird. But then I was surprised the good-naturedness with which the Southampton fans took it. I was standing there drinking a beer at halftime. They won't sell you beer during the game. They stop at kickoff and then at when halftime is over. And a guy with an actual smile on his face uh, standing there next to me drinking a beer looked at me and said, I tell you, I don't know if I want to go back in. And he sounded surprised to hear himself say it. Like yeah. He never thought in his entire life he'd leave a Southampton game early. And yet <laughs> now he was considering it. Well, there you go. I'm glad you got to have that experience. It was honestly great. It was a lot of fun. That's going to wrap it up here for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. We will be back on Wednesday for the live chat over on Patreon. That's for all levels of patrons, $1, $5, and $10. And then again on Friday, back for the Power Hour. That's for $5 and $10 patrons. Uh, UFC 244 this weekend. We will be on location at Buffalo Wild Wings here in Missoula, Montana. Look out for the tweets on that one. I feel like Uh, we might have some tweets. And, of course, we're back one week from today for the co-main event podcast next Monday to break down all the stuff that happened at UFC 244. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So we roll up in there. Is our wing strategy just pure? We're eating nothing but BMF wings. We gotta call ahead. We gotta call ahead and find out if the BMF wing sauce is gonna even be available. If it's not, burn that thing down. Yeah. What do you even have a buffalo wild wing if you're not gonna just fake the BMF wing motion? I fully agree. I fully agree. I mean, I'll call people on the city council.
they'll probably all be there so you can just <laughs> take it up with them. Then.